Now, before we read Acts chapter 8, verse 26, I want to remind you of this beautiful story that has been painted to us um, from the time Jesus was born by Luke. Acts, of course, is the great sequel to Luke's gospel. This would be the Jesus sequel. It's part two. Acts begins in a prologue where Jesus is still hanging around after he's been resurrected, right? The tomb was empty. The disciples were confused where he was. And then he starts showing up, eating with them and talking to them and revealing what scripture means to them. And then in Acts, he goes up to heaven. The prologue has three promises that God delivers. The first promise is that you will receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this to the disciples. The second promise that Jesus gives in the prologue of Acts is that you will be witnesses, my witnesses, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The third promise shows up after Jesus ascends into heaven and these strange men in white robes, we call them angels, promise that Jesus will come back. Now the curious nature of the story of Acts is that only two of these promises have been fulfilled, right? We end in Rome with Paul and Jesus still hasn't come back. In fact, we find ourselves today still in this time where a few of these promises have been delivered and we're still waiting for that one third promise. You can almost feel it in your guts. We're ready for it, but it's not here yet. So in the meantime, what do we do? Who are we as the church? Those are big questions that Acts gets to answer. So Acts chapter 8 shows up um, after the church has been sort of blossoming in a place like Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost. The church begins witnessing and proclaiming this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah, as, as the true king, the theocracy is finally going to come on earth, right? Israel will become the true light to all the nations. The world will be restored. God is making all things new. This is who Jesus is. This is who the disciples know that Jesus is. And so in Jerusalem, they talk about it to as many Jewish people as they can. But a lot of Jews get angry at them, and they start persecuting them. And they say, no, 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 no. You don't know what you're talking about. And the church is forced underground, and it's forced out of the temple courts, and it's forced to move in towns nearby. This is how the gospel and God's miraculous plan spreads to Samaria and Judea. Now, have any of you been a deacon? Raise your hand if you've been a deacon before. Fantastic. This story is going to be right up your alley because Philip is one of the church's first deacons. Now, let's read this story. Remember, the church is now spreading from beyond Jerusalem into other parts of Samaria and Judea. So, now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, 
and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life? was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. We're going to pause there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now remember, Philip is a deacon. And one thing that you know if you were a deacon ever is that deacons have this grave and profound responsibility, do they not? If you're a deacon, you know this. You know what it's like to show up when people need someone to talk to. You know what it's like to go visit someone in the hospital when they're rubbed to the bone with stress or anxiety. There is a curious nature to being a deacon, and we see that testified to here with Philip. I remember the first time I ever hung out with deacons. I was a lowly seminary student. In my first summer, after having a full year in seminary, I took a job in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, as a summer pastoral intern, where one of the first weeks I got to hang out with some of the deacons at Hope Reformed Church. Great place, really great place. That day, some deacons and elders were going to go visit someone in a nursing home. Now, this man was very, very old. His wife had long since passed away. He liked to sit in a rocking chair in the corner of his room for long hours and look out the window. To say he was lonely was an understatement. To say I was excited to go visit this really old guy that I didn't know was that I just wasn't excited at all. I was a little nervous, right? This was my first time ever doing something like this. And like we said, deacons enter into that sort of sacred place, right? And sure enough, it happens. We walk into this man's room, and you can feel the air. It's palpable, right? He's sitting there in his rocking chair, and I'm not quite sure if he's awake or if he's sleeping. And we try to make small talk with him, and I can't quite hear what he's saying, but... But we were there to do one thing sacred, and that was to feed this man the Lord's Supper. And sure enough, as I began to read those familiar words that he had heard his entire life sitting in a pew right before receiving the nourishment from the Lord, he perked up 
And in his rocking chair, his eyes opened wide and he began to breathe heavier and heavier, knowing with great anticipation that something sacred was happening, right? You can feel it. Now, what was happening was that we were meeting him in a place of loneliness and and we were reminding him with a tangible, physical nourishment who Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior is. And that really got him going, right? So deacons have this grave and sacred responsibility to meet people in unique places and, and feed them the truth of the gospel. And sure enough, this is what we see Philip doing. Philip hears the Holy Spirit through an angel tell him to go to a certain place. Where does he go? South to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. If you know anything about this geography, this is the wilderness, right? That, that word, the desert road, eremos. Can you say that with me? Eremos. Eremos is the same word that Mark uses to describe the wilderness that Jesus goes into when he's tested and tempted for 40 days. We're in a lonely, desolate, wilderness road sort of situation. And this is where Philip goes. Philip, of course, as a deacon, right? The word deacon, diakoneo, is, is literally serve. It means to serve. It comes from earlier in Acts when, when the church is not feeding their widows food. And these seven Hellenistic Jewish people, Stephen and Philip, get anointed to be servers of the people. Um, that word serve is the same word that shows up in in that story in Mark when Jesus is in the Eremos um, and the angels serve him. Deacons walk on sacred ground and they serve people sacred things of God. So here we are. We're on a lonely desert wilderness road and we meet an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, who is this strange Ethiopian eunuch? What is an Ethiopian eunuch in first century Palestine? What would this man look like? Well, he's African, okay? And he probably comes from a territory just south of Egypt, along the Nile. There was actually a very infamous queen named Candace that this man could have actually been serving. We find out that he's in charge of her treasure. This man is someone important. He's also a eunuch. Well, this would be common for anybody who would serve in this time in in a sort of a kingdom where you would be in close contact with a queen, you would have to be castrated to get rid of that temptation of of anything inappropriate happening, right? The king didn't want this to happen, so this is what would happen to servants. They would become eunuchs. Maybe this was by choice so that this man could go from being a slave to working in the, the in the royal palace or something like that, or maybe he was forced into it, who knows. All we know is that this man is a black man from Africa, and this man is castrated. And he goes to Jerusalem. Why does he go to Jerusalem? Is he Jewish? Right? That's why people go to Jerusalem. Great feasts happen in Jerusalem, and Jewish people travel from all over the place to go there and worship God. Well, he's not Jewish, and I'll prove it to you. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy. Let's see. Let's read 
or Joshua after Numbers. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Is this man Jewish? Chapter 23. Um, chapter 23, verse 1. The Deuteronomic law lays out a black and white law about who can be a part of the great assembly of God and who will be excluded. Verse 1. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. This man is not Jewish because Jewish people would literally not allow him to be Jewish. This man is a goy. Can you say that with me? Goy. Goy. This is what Jewish people would call, it's a Hebrew word meaning um, anybody who's not Jewish. This man is goy. And some Jewish people don't really like goy. Needless to say, this man shows up in Jerusalem to worship. He's obviously intrigued and curious about this Hebrew God. We also know that he's somewhat wealthy because he's been able to purchase a scroll. On his way back from worshiping, he's reading this scroll. Now, we don't know exactly what happened when he worshiped, but we do know this. As a goy, he would have only been allowed in the very outer court of the temple to worship in Jerusalem. He would not be allowed anywhere else. We know this because later in Acts, Paul is actually going to get arrested for bringing some goy closer to the center of the temple than just that outer court. Um, this man has been worshiping in Jerusalem, and yet he's still on the edges being marginalized by the Jewish faith, even though he's clearly intrigued by this God. You could say, metaphorically, he emerges from his experience in Jerusalem going home on a long desert road. Now, what happens is he begins to read this scroll. And I don't know if any of you who have ever read the Bible, but there is a mysterious, curious power that comes about from reading the Bible. I remember when I graduated from college, I, I was a, an excited young chap, 22 years old, got my first job right out of school, and I drove all the way across the country to Denver, Colorado. I remember that trip. It was in my Chevy S10 pickup truck. I had about 1,000 pounds worth of stuff in my trailer that I was pulling college stuff, you know, beanbag chairs and flannel, flannel sheets. Um, <laughs> my dad was actually with me. He helped me move. And uh, I, I drove all the way out there 20 hours to Denver, Colorado, without knowing exactly where I was going to live. We found an apartment the, the day we got there. We moved in, and that Sunday morning, he was on a plane flying back to Michigan. Um, and there I was, in this brand new apartment, in a, in a place I had never been before, surrounded by people who I had never known before, and I began to miss my family. This sort of loneliness and isolation began sort of creeping into my life. Now, I didn't really know exactly what to do. First time living on my own, what do you do? I guess you unpack boxes, right? So I began to unpack my boxes, and one of the first ones that I unpacked had this strange, curious book on top. And I opened it up and, and turned to the very first page. Now, this book was something that I had received for Christmas when I was in when I was in elementary school, I must have been eight years old. Of course, this book was a Bible, and I remember the Christmas that my grandpa 
who was a pastor, gave it to me. I remember thinking, I wish I got a bike. Nonetheless, here was this Bible, curiously turning up in my life again after all these years. And I opened to the front page, and there was a, a letter written in it by my grandpa. It was printed in one of those, off of one of those dot matrix printers, if any of you remember printers in like 1993, that you could see all the little pinprick dots. And, and it, was, it was carefully taped to the inside cover, and it read like this, Dear Matthew, this is the greatest gift we can give you. It's a gift we've given to all of our grandchildren at this point in their life. We hope that you use it and that you cherish it and that you make its truths a part of your life. Love, Grandpa and Grandma, Christmas 1993. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot cooler than getting a bike. Now, what I'm trying to say is there is a curious, uh, special power about having scripture and reading it and using it and making it a part of your life. And this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch is experiencing this on his way home from Jerusalem. He's reading a scroll of Isaiah and he happens to be a little confused. So God sends Philip, a deacon, to visit him on this lonely desert road. Now, where is he reading? He's got a scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading from Isaiah 53. Does anybody know what Isaiah is talking about or dealing with towards the end of his book? Isaiah 53, he's describing the suffering servant. And if we could bring ourselves hundreds of years back to, to the context in which God was writing through Isaiah, we would know Isaiah wasn't necessarily zoomed in to Jesus Christ at this point as the for sure guy he was talking about. No, Isaiah is trying to breathe God's word into a context where Israel is in exile. The Babylonian Empire has swept through and dominated their kingdom. The people of God have hung their harps on trees as they watch soldiers mock them and pass them by. They're in exile, they are without their temple, they're without the presence of God. And here comes an, a, a prophet like Isaiah who, who tells them the way to redemption is maybe through suffering. The way to redemption is God sending a suffering servant. He, he fills in this job description of what true redemption will look like for Israel. And sure enough, it turns out that true redemption is found in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah. And when Philip explains this to the Ethiopian eunuch, no wonder he's excited. Because if you read those next few chapters in Isaiah, the suffering servant means that, that Israel will become the light of the world that redemption will become available to people outside of just the Jewish community, that, that new creation and new hope and new life will begin radiating forth in, in all kinds of creative ways. Well, wouldn't this make you excited if you just came from a, a context where you found out you couldn't be Jewish? I, I know it would if, if I were an Ethiopian eunuch. And so he says, I want, I want to get on board with this, Jesus. I want to become a part of this Christian church. This seems like maybe, maybe it's the real deal. And of course, we see the Christian church and God himself 
extending his sign and his seal in baptism on, on a black man who's castrated. This is sort of where the story gets strange and a little uncomfortable for some of us, right? But the reality is, all of us are goy. All of us are the outsiders. And because of Jesus Christ, all of us have been invited to the party. So what does that mean for the church? How do we move forward from here? How do we extend that, it, it, that invitation of, of loving welcome to the rest of the world? If you're a deacon, what does it mean for you? What kind of people do you need to visit who might be on long desert wilderness roads? If you haven't been reading your Bible lately, what would it mean for you to pick up scripture and be re-exposed and refreshed to this, myster this mysterious and powerful and beautiful and wonderful story of redemption that, that has been executed in Jesus Christ and is still continuing into your life and mine, into our children's lives and into our grandchildren's lives. The world is becoming a better place. The kingdom of God is breaking forth before our eyes. This church is in on the act when we go to places like Mexico and we cross those sort of strange cultural boundaries and we try to show love, the love of Jesus Christ to people. I, if this doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. I want to recap. This is a story that happens after God has made two promises. That you will receive the Holy Spirit, and you have. That you will be witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is happening still. And there's a third promise that's on, that Jesus Christ is coming back. And we better be ready. Pray with me, please. God, you show up in places like this through your word. And for that, we thank you over and over again. We ask that tonight you might sink some kind of seed deep in our heart that begins blossoming like the kingdom of God. We ask that your Holy Spirit come upon us. We ask that you empower us to be witnesses for the truth and the love and the beauty of Jesus for the whole world. Lord, and we ask that you come back. Amen.